Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Read with Michelle Martin on Your Money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Oh, it's a book that says intelligence is not only your ability to think and to learn, but there is a whole other set of cognitive skills that may matter more. Rethinking and unlearning. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist from the Wharton School. He is a New York Times bestselling author of the book you might find familiar, Give and Take. And he has a new book out, which I've been hooked on because as a journalist, I am obsessed with entering different points of views and I'm obsessed about the art of listening well as a tool for change. So the book that we're reading today is Think Again, and we are thrilled to have with us live global best-selling author Adam Grant. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm great. How are you? Doing really well. So your book, Adam, has hit number one here in Singapore on the nonfiction book list of the biggest bookseller here, Kino Kunia. Singaporeans already love your book. Honored. I hope that the book lives up to that and that nobody rethinks their enthusiasm. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, you know, because um, in university, I remember struggling to wrap my head around ideas that I disagreed with until I came across this quote by Lao Tzu. So he is the author of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, he's an ancient Chinese philosopher. And he said, and I paraphrase, your mind is like a reed always bending in the wind. And, and I love that idea of mental flexibility. So why does your book say rethinking, Adam, could be more important a set of cognitive skills than the ability to learn in the first place? Well, I think it's because the world is changing and it's changing faster than it ever did in the past. And the risk is that people get too attached to knowledge and opinions that have become obsolete, right? It's, we, we all laugh at, at dinosaur fossils, at how old they are. Uh, we forget that we carry around mental fossils, right? That old beliefs and old ideas sometimes are just collecting dust and they ought to be abandoned. And I think the, the reason that's so important in a changing world is a lot of times people become experts for a world that just doesn't exist anymore. And they're too slow to admit that the things they used to believe are no longer true. And I think the faster you are to admit that you were wrong, the faster you can move toward being right. And we all want to be right, don't we? <laughs> now, most people think that, you know, speaking from conviction or certitude is a way of communicating that really leaves no space for doubt. And that is a hallmark of persuasive and confident speakers or preachers or parents or bosses. So does a focus on rethinking or expressing, you know, mixed um, emotions, mixed ideas make one less convincing? It depends on how you do it doesn't it? Which is the most social science answer I could possibly think of. <laughs> Everything always depends. But there is evidence showing that if you're, if you're an expert or if you have established credibility, that expressing a little bit of doubt can make you more persuasive because it surprises the audience. And then they actually pay more attention to the substance of your argument, which ultimately is more convincing if you know what you're talking about. It is disarming, right? To say, you know, there's, there's a lot I don't know here. Um, and I'd love to share with you a little bit of my perspective and hear your reaction to it. Uh, what's powerful about that in many situations is you don't feel like I'm trying to influence you. So you don't put your guard up. You're not worried about being manipulated. And that means we can have a more open-minded conversation. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, for context, Adam, share with the audience perhaps the kind of psychologist that you are. I'm an organizational psychologist. And uh, that basically means my job is to study how to make work not suck. 
We love that on this channel where we're all about uh, serving business leaders. Um, there's so much polarization in the world, Adam, whether it's sports or abortion or how we strive for gender equality. And you write in this book, rivalries are not unique to sport. A rival exists whenever we reserve special animosity for a group that we see as competing with us for resources or threatening our identities, and that when people hold prejudices towards a rival group, they are often willing to do whatever it takes to elevate their own group and undermine their rivals, even if it means doing harm or wrong. So what does your book think again, say about rethinking prejudice or stereotypes? Well, I just finished some experiments on this with my colleague Tim Kundro, where we took people on opposite sides of the the abortion debate. And we said, okay, instead of trying to get you to empathize with them or imagine their perspective, what if you actually thought about your life unfolding to land you in the position that they did? So if you're pro-life, for example, we said, what if you grew up in a family that was pro-choice? So the, the basic idea is when you imagine yourself having been raised in a different family or in a different environment, you start to realize that these beliefs that you think are fixed that define the other side are actually a little bit more flexible and that people are more than their most hateful beliefs. And we found that after just imagining having grown up in a family that had the opposite views, that people were more willing to debate somebody, uh, excuse me, to date somebody with different views on abortion. They were also less likely to attack their views and more likely to listen to them and respect them. And I think the, the, the powerful idea here is just to say, look, you know, if, if we all were living in the 1700s right now, mm -hmm. we would probably believe some pretty ridiculous things. And it's easy to look back at people in history and laugh at them. But there are going to be people in the future, 200 years from now, who make fun of the things that we believe. And that ought to make us a little bit more tolerant of people who have different views. I want to dig in a little deeper into how you manage these conversations, uh, difficult conversations. How can we come across um, as someone who's, you know, entertaining and listening to somebody else and opening minds without coming across as disagreeable. You have a great question that you use several times in the book, which is, how can I make you change your mind? Or what evidence would you need for me to be able to change your mind? Is that is that one tool? It's one of my favorite questions to ask. And one of the reasons I ask it, Michelle, is because I have a bad habit of being a logic bully, uh, which one of my former students called me. She said, you're a logic bully. You're just overwhelmingly with facts and with reasons. And I don't agree with you but I don't feel like I can fight back. And I realized that this is something I've done throughout my life, that when somebody disagrees with me, I just think it's my responsibility to correct them and to bring them as much data as possible to change their mind. And that makes them defensive or it leads them to withdraw. So instead, what I've tried to do is I've tried to think a little bit more like a scientist and say, okay, if I put my scientist hat on, when somebody disagrees with me, that's fascinating. How in the world could you possibly believe something different? And I really want to understand it. And that makes me curious. And so I might come into the conversation and say, Michelle, here's, you know, here's my take on this issue. What evidence would change your mind? And if you say nothing, I'll, I'll just think, okay, I can lead a horse to water, but I can't make it think. But usually people say, well, you know, here are the things I would have to see in order to be persuaded. Mm -hmm. And then we can actually have a conversation around some common standards, which is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most fascinating parts of the book is when you talk about um, forecasters 
And, you know, here on this show, we talk to people who are constantly looking at stocks and, you know, what's on the buy and the sell list or calling election results. So what did you learn about professional forecasters, their ability to sort of peer into the future? And how does that tie back to this idea of rethinking assumptions? Okay, so these super forecasters who compete in tournaments to predict who's going to win the next World Cup or who's going to win the next election in a given country. Uh, one of the things that, that you see in these tournaments is most people will make a prediction and then they basically stick to it. They might update it once or twice. The best forecasters rethink twice as often. After making a prediction, they revise it on average about four times. And what that does is it allows them to keep improving their thinking, right, as they gain new information or as circumstances shift. And one of the, the best examples of this that I've seen is this super forecaster that I spent some time with, Jean-Pierre Bougam. He's the world's best election forecaster. And what he, he does is he makes a prediction and then he makes a list of conditions that would change his mind. I think that is so smart because right up front, before he gets attached to his forecast, he's starting to identify things that would lead him to rethink. And that keeps him honest. If one of those boxes gets checked, he says, oh, this is an opportunity to change my mind and evolve my, my understanding, which ultimately is going to get him closer to the truth. I really like this book because, you know, as an interviewer, I can, I, I see every day how a conversation can be so powerful. And, and you share a conversation in the book about a parent who is reluctant about vaccinations and, and just the way that uh, a medical professional listened to her and had a chat with her and how that, you know, changed her stance. So what does your book say about listening as a way to bring about change or what, what is influential listening? I, I think it's one of the most powerful things I've ever learned, um, not just in my professional life as a psychologist, right, but also as a parent, also as a, as a husband. I think that so often we think the way to open people's minds is to talk to them. The reality is, though, that you can't force somebody to change their own mind. And you're better off asking questions and listening in many situations to help them uncover their own motivation to change. So, you know, what the this extraordinary vaccine whisperer did in, um, in a series of studies is he would sit down with parents who had fears about vaccines. And instead of preaching at them, instead of prosecuting them, instead of judging them, he would say, I know you want what's best for your child. And so do I. Uh, I would love, love to understand better. What are your views? Um, I know there's a lot of confusing and conflicting information about vaccines out there. Um, can you share with me what your understanding is? And he would just listen understanding that people generally do not listen until they feel heard. And then after they'd shared a bunch of their views, he would at some point say, you know, ultimately this is going to be your choice. I trust that you're going to do what's in the best interest of your child. Um, I, you know, this is obviously an area that I have some expertise in. Can I have your permission to share some of my knowledge? And he would let them know gently which of their beliefs might be supported by science and which ones aren't. And people are significantly more willing to vaccinate their children afterward. And he's hardly said a persuasive word, right? What he's really done is he's earned their trust and their respect by caring about what they have to say. Yeah, so take judgment out of the conversation. But also what I got out of that when I read that was he communicated that he was coming from the same place of caring for the child that the parent was. So communicating your motive may be more important than listing out the reasons why you're right. I think that's such an important observation. So often we're resistant to opening our minds to somebody else, not because we disagree with what they say, but because we don't trust them. And we, we're not sure that they have our best intentions at heart. 
And so if there's, you know, if there's anything you do going into a conversation, it's to establish what your goals and your motivations are. And when, when I go into logic bully mode, of course, this falls apart. So one of the things I've started doing recently since writing the book is I'll actually start a disagreement by saying, hey, Michelle, I just want to let you know, I have a bad habit of being a logic bully. And that's not who I want to be, right? I am hoping that in this conversation, I'll learn some new things. And, you know, I don't know if there's anything I know that might teach you something, but I hope we can both learn something here. If you catch me going into logic bully mode and just beating you up with data, please call me out on that so that I can quit immediately. And I found that when I do that, a couple of things happen. One is, of course, people will call me out and that allows me to course correct before it's too late. Mm. But two, and maybe more importantly, when I, when I share that, when I'm a little bit vulnerable that way, the other person will say, you know, I can be really stubborn and I don't like that version of myself either. If you see me doing that, please let me know. And we're both committing to being open, which is a great place to start the conversation. Great tips on how to set a culture or a space for a safe conversations. What do we, what do we do at work though? When, you know, the critical thinker in some cultures can be thought of as dangerous because she is threatening to the old ways of doing things. And we hear so much about psychological safety at work. So how can we promote rethinking and psychological safety at work? Well, I've, I've done some studies on this with another one of my colleagues, and what we find is that most leaders think they build psychological safety and make it easy for people to challenge them by asking for feedback and criticism, right? Saying, okay, you know, if, if you see any blind spots, if you, you know, if you recognize any problems, please let me know right away. And that tends to work in the short term and then fade because people aren't really sure what's safe to bring up. They don't know if you're going to take it well. Sometimes they do bring it up and you get defensive or, you know, you just don't take action on whatever their issues are. And they basically conclude the door is not open. What works better is when leaders go the extra step of not just seeking criticism, but actually criticizing themselves out loud. Right. And this is something that we're terrible at in America, which I think has a, a culture of exceptionalism. Um, I think in Singapore and other Southeast Asian countries, there's a much stronger norm of humility, right? And it's easier for a leader to stand up and say, here are my weaknesses. Here are the shortcomings of my thinking. And if, you know, if you see any issues on this list or not on this list, please let me know. And when leaders criticize themselves out loud, they're not just claiming they're open to feedback. They are proving that they can take it, which is a great way to open the door and keep it open. You know, your book reminded me of an, another quote from Lao Tzu. You can tell I'm a fan of Lao Tzu. And he said, when I let go of who I am, I become what I might be. And I love it. At the start of the book, you talk about being part of a small group of uh, students at Harvard who might have outdone Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook because you came up with the idea of a social you know, network five years before Zuckerberg did. Um, and then you go on to say that rethinking has be now become part of your, your identity. I wonder if you can elaborate on that. Well, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> In 1999, <laughs> uh, I, I co-founded what has been called Harvard's first online social network. And it was just a group of friends, uh, actually new friends who'd never even met in person, trying to get to know each other before college started. And we'd all gathered on America Online and found each other through profile searches and then built this email list that by the start of college had connected more than an eighth of the entering freshman class. And then we got to Cambridge and we said, well, we all live on the same campus now. We don't need an online social network to connect us. We shut it down and walked away. And five years later, Mark Zuckerberg starts Facebook in the house next door. 
Now, I don't know how to code, right? I, I don't think I would have ever had the vision for what Facebook ultimately became. But I made a lot of assumptions that I failed to rethink. One of them was that, uh, that this was actually a business, right, as opposed to just a hobby. Another was that as a, a student, this was interesting to me. And, you know, social media would not be something useful for adults. And I think that what's, what's so interesting looking back on that is we didn't even realize we were making those assumptions, right? We just said, all right, social network's done, don't need it anymore. And I think that's the first place that people miss opportunities to think again, is they haven't even figured out what assumptions they're making that need to be questioned. Well, I hope we've inspired you, the listener, to think about rooting yourself in flexibility and having the confident humility to rethink your assumptions. I love this book. And, you know, all of you who made it, pushed it to number one at Kinokunia, I know what I'm talking about. If you haven't read it yet, you need to pick it up. The book's title is Think Again. It's by Adam Grant. Adam, fantastic talking to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Next time, I want to hear what I need to rethink. <laughs> Absolutely. This is Reed. I'm Michelle Martin. Thanks for being with us here on Singapore's most influential radio station, Money FM 89.3.